Chapter 7, Section 1 of Celebrated Crimes, Volume 2, The Massacres of the South. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by John Van Stan, Savannah, Georgia. Celebrated Crimes, Volume 2, The Massacres of the South by Alexander Dumas. Chapter 7, Section 1. The Protestants, as we have said, hailed the golden dawn of the revolution with delight. Then came the terror, which struck at all without distinction of creed. A hundred and thirty-eight heads fell on the scaffold, condemned by the revolutionary tribunal of the guard. Ninety-one of those executed were Catholic, and forty-seven Protestants, so that it looked as if the executioners, in their desire for impartiality, had taken a census of the population. Then came the consulates the protestants being mostly tradesmen and manufacturers were therefore richer than the catholics and had more to lose they seemed to see more chance of stability in this form of government than in those preceding it and it was evident that it had a more powerful genius at its head so they rallied round it with confidence and sincerity the empire followed with its inclination to absolutism its continental system and its increased taxation and the protestants drew back somewhat for it was towards them who had hoped so much from him that napoleon in not keeping the promises of bonaparte was most perjured the first restoration therefore was greeted at nimes with a universal shout of joy and a superficial observer might have thought that all trace of the old religious leaven had disappeared in fact for seventeen years the two faiths had lived side by side in perfect peace and mutual goodwill for seventeen years men met either for business or for social purposes without inquiring about each other's religion so that nimes on the surface might have been held up as an example of union and fraternity when monsieur arrived at nimes his guard of honor was drawn from the city guard which still retained its organization of eighteen twelve being composed of citizens without distinction of creed six decorations were conferred on it three on catholics and three on protestants at the same time monsieur Donant, monsieur olivier de mont and monsieur de sienne the first the mayor the second the president of the consistory and the third a member of the prefecture all three belonging to the reformed religion received the same favor such impartiality on the part of monsieur almost betrayed a preference and this offended the catholics they muttered to one another that in the past there had been a time when the fathers of those who had just been decorated by the hand of the prince had fought against his faithful adherence hardly had monsieur left the town therefore than it became apparent that perfect harmony no longer existed the catholics had a favorite cafe which during the whole time the empire lasted was also frequented by protestants without a single dispute caused by the difference of religion ever arising but from this time forth the catholics began to hold themselves aloof from the protestants the latter perceiving this gave up the cafe by degrees to the catholics being determined to keep the peace whatever it might cost and went to a cafe which had been just opened under the sign of the isle of elba the name was enough to cause them to be regarded as bonapartists and as to bonapartists the cry long live the king was supposed to be offensive they were saluted at every turn with these words pronounced in a tone which became every day more menacing at first they gave back the same cry long live the king but then they were called cowards who expressed with their lips a sentiment which did not come from their hearts feeling that this accusation had some truth in it 
they were silent but then they were accused of hating the royal family till at length the cry which at first had issued from full hearts in a universal chorus grew to be nothing but an expression of party hatred so that on the twenty first february eighteen fifteen monsieur donant the mayor by a decree prohibited the public from using it as it had become a means of exciting sedition party feeling had reached this height at nimes when on the fourth march the news of the landing of napoleon arrived deep as was the impression produced the city remained calm but somewhat sullen in any case the report wanted confirmation napoleon who knew of the sympathy that the mountaineers felt for him went at once to the alps and his eagle did not as yet take so high a flight that it could be seen hovering above mount Genève. on the twelfth the duke d'angouleme arrived two proclamations calling the citizens to arms signalized his presence the citizens answered the call with true southern ardor an army was formed but although protestants and catholics presented themselves for enrollment with equal alacrity the protestants were excluded the catholics denying the right of defending their legitimate sovereign to any but themselves this species of selection apparently went on without the knowledge of the duke d'angouleme during his stay in nimes he received protestants and catholics with equal cordiality and they sat at his table side by side it happened once on a friday at dinner that a protestant general took fish and a catholic general helped himself to fowl the duke being amused drew attention to this anomaly whereupon the catholic general replied better more chicken and less treason this attack was so direct that although the protestant general felt that as far as he was concerned it had no point he rose from the table and left the room it was the brave general gilly who was treated in this cruel manner meanwhile the news became more disastrous every day napoleon was moving about with the rapidity of his eagles on the twenty fourth march it was reported in nimes that louis the eighteenth had left paris on the nineteenth and that napoleon had entered on the twentieth this report was traced to its source and it was found that it had been spread abroad by monsieur vincent de st laurent a councillor of the prefecture and one of the most respected men in nimes he was summoned at once before the authorities and asked whence he had this information he replied from a letter received from monsieur braguere producing the letter but convincing as was this proof it availed him nothing he was escorted from brigade to brigade till he reached the chateau d'if the protestants sided with monsieur vincent de st laurent the catholics took the part of the authorities who were persecuting him and thus the two factions which had been so long quiescent found themselves once more face to face and their dormant hatred awoke to new life for the moment however there was no explosion although the city was at fever heat and every one felt that a crisis was at hand on the twenty second march two battalions of catholic volunteers had already been enlisted at nimes and had formed part of the eighteen hundred men who were sent to saint esprit just before their departure fleur-de-lis had been distributed amongst them made of red cloth this change in the color of the monarchical emblem was a threat which the protestants well understood the prince left nimes in due course taking with him the rest of the royal volunteers and leaving the protestants practically masters of nimes during the absence of so many catholics the city however continued calm and when provocations began strange to say they came from the weaker party on the twenty seventh march six men met in a barn dined together 
and then agreed to make the circuit of the town. These men were Jacques Dupont, who later acquired such terrible celebrity under the name of Trestaillon, Trufemi the butcher, Morinet the dog-shearer, Hors, Servant, and Guillet. They got opposite the café Isle of Elba, the name of which indicated the opinion of those who frequented it. This café was faced by a guard-house, which was occupied by soldiers of the 67th Regiment. The six made a halt, and in the most insulting tones raised the cry of long live the king the disturbance that ensued was so slight that we only mention it in order to give an idea of the tolerance of the protestants and to bring upon the stage the men mentioned above who were three months later to play such a terrible part on april first the mayor summoned to a meeting at his official residence the municipal council the members of all the variously constituted administrative bodies in nimes the officers of the city guards the priests the protestant pastors and the chief citizens at this meeting monsieur trinquelag advocate of the royal courts read a powerful address expressing the love of the citizens for their king and country and exhorting them to union and peace this address was unanimously adopted and signed by all present and amongst the signatures were those of the principal protestants of nimes but this was not all the next day it was printed and published and copies sent to all the communes in the department over which the white flag still floated and all this happened as we have said on april and eleven days after napoleon's return to paris the same day word arrived that the imperial government had been proclaimed at montpellier the next day april third all the officers on half pay assembled at the fountain to be reviewed by a general and a sub-inspector and as these officers were late the order of the day issued by general ambert recognizing the imperial government was produced and passed along the ranks causing such excitement that one of the officers drew his sword and cried long live the emperor these magic words were re-echoed from every side and they all hastened to the barracks of the sixty-third regiment which had once joined the officers at this juncture marshal pelissier arrived and did not appear to welcome the turn things had taken he made an effort to restrain the enthusiasm of the crowd but was immediately arrested by his own soldiers the officers repaired in a body to the headquarters of general briche commandant of the garrison and asked for the official copy of the order of the day he replied that he had received none and when questioned as to which side he was on he refused to answer the officers upon this took him prisoner just as they had consigned him to the barracks for confinement a post-office official arrived bringing a despatch from general ambert learning that general briche was a prisoner the messenger carried his packet to the colonel of the sixty-third regiment who was the next in seniority after the general in opening it it was found to contain the order of the day instantly the colonel ordered the guineal to sound the town guards assumed arms the troops left the barracks and formed in line the national guards in the rear of the regular troops and when they were all thus drawn up the order of the day was read it was then snatched out of the colonel's hands printed on large placards and in less time than seemed possible it was posted up in every street and at every street corner the tricolor replaced the white cockade everyone being obliged to wear the national emblem or none at all the city was proclaimed in a state of siege and the military officers formed a vigilance committee and a police force while the duc d'angouleme had been staying at nimes general gilly had applied for a command in that prince's army but in spite of all his efforts obtained nothing so immediately after the dinner at which he was insulted 
he had withdrawn to Averneda, his place in the country. He was awoke in the night of the 5th to 6th April by a courier from General Lambert, who sent to offer him the command of the 2nd subdivision. On the 6th, General Gilly went to Nimes and sent in his acceptance, whereby the departments of the Guard, the Lozera, and Ardesha passed under his authority. Next day, General Gilly received further despatches from General Lambert, from which he learned that it was the general's intention, in order to avoid the danger of a civil war, to separate the Duke d'Angoulême's army from the departments which sympathized with the royal cause. He had therefore decided to make Pont-Saint-Esprit a military post, and had ordered the 10th Regiment of Mounted Chasseurs, the 13th Artillery, and a battalion of infantry to move towards this point by forced marches. These troops were commanded by Colonel Saint-Laurent, but General Ambert was anxious that if it could be done without danger, General Gilly should leave Nimes, taking with him part of the 63rd Regiment, and joining the other forces under the command of Colonel Saint-Laurent, should assume the chief command. As the city was quite tranquil, General Gilly did not hesitate to obey this order. He set out from Nimes on the 7th, passed the night at Uza, and finding that town abandoned by the magistrates, declared it in a state of siege, lest disturbances should arise in the absence of authority, having placed Monsieur de Bresson in command, a retired chief of battalion who was born in Uza, and who usually lived there, he continued his march on the morning of the 8th. Beyond the village of Conan, General Gilly met an orderly sent to him by Colonel St. Laurent to inform him that he, the colonel, had occupied Pont-Saint-Esprit, and that the Duke d'Angoulême, finding himself thus caught between two fires, had just sent General Daltane, chief of staff in the royal army to him to enter into negotiations for a surrender upon this general gilly quickened his advance and on reaching pont saint esprit found general daltana and colonel saint laurent conferring together at the hotel de la poste as colonel saint laurent had received his instructions directly from the commander-in-chief several points relating to the capitulation had already been agreed upon of these general gilly slightly altered some and approved of the others and the same day the following convention was signed convention concluded between general gilly and baron de damas s a r monseigneur le duc d'angoulême commander-in-chief of the royal army in the south and baron de gilly general of division and commander-in-chief of the first corps of the imperial army being most anxiously desirous to prevent any further effusion of french blood have given plenary powers to arrange the terms of a convention to s a r monsieur le baron de damas field marshal and under chief of staff and general de gilly and adjutant lefevre chevalier of the legion of honour and chief of the staff of the first army corps who having shown each other their respective credentials have agreed on the following terms article one the royal army is to be disbanded and the national guards which are enrolled in it under whatever name they may have been levied will return to their homes after laying down their arms safe conducts will be provided and the general of division commanding-in-chief guarantees that they shall never be molested for anything they may have said or done in connection with the events preceding the present convention the officers will retain their swords the troops of the line who form part of this army will repair to such garrisons as may be assigned to them article two the general officers superior staff officers and others of all branches of the service and the chiefs and subordinates of the administrative departments 
of whose names a list will be furnished to the general-in-chief will retire to their homes and there await the orders of his majesty the emperor article three officers of every rank who wish to resign their commissions are competent to do so they will receive passports for their homes article four the funds of the army and the lists of the paymaster general will be handed over at once to commissioners appointed for that purpose by the commander-in-chief article five the above articles apply to the corps commanded by monseigneur le duc d'angoulême in person and also to those who act separately but under his orders and as forming part of the royal army of the south article six h r h will post to Seta where the vessels necessary for him and his suite will be waiting to take him wherever he may desire detachments of the imperial army will be placed at all the relays on the road to protect his royal highness during the journey and the honours due to his rank will be everywhere paid him if he so desire article seven all the officers and other persons of his royal highness's suite who desire to follow him will be permitted to do so and they may either embark with him at once or later should their private affairs need time for arrangement article eight the present treaty will be kept secret until his royal highness have quitted the limits of the empire executed in duplicate and agreed upon between the above-mentioned plenipotentiaries the eighth day of april in the year eighteen fifteen with the approval of the general commanding-in-chief and signed at the headquarters at pont saint esprit on the day and year above written signed lefevre adjutant and chief of staff of the first corps of the imperial army of the south signed baron de damas field marshal and under chief of staff the present convention is approved of by the general of division commanding-in-chief the imperial army of the south signed gilly after some discussion between general gilly and general grouchy the capitulation was carried into effect on the sixteenth april at eight o'clock in the morning the duc d'angoulême arrived at set and went on board the swedish vessel scandinavia which taking advantage of a favorable wind set sail the same day early in the morning of the ninth an officer of high rank had been sent to la palode to issue safe conducts to the troops who according to article one of the capitulation were to return home after laying down their arms but during the preceding day and night some of the royal volunteers had evaded this article by withdrawing with their arms and baggage as this infraction of the terms led to serious consequences we propose in order to establish the fact to cite the depositions of three royal volunteers who afterwards gave evidence on leaving the army of the duc d'angoulême after the capitulation says jean saunier i went with my officers and my corps to saint jean de Anel. from there we marched towards uza in the middle of a forest near a village the name of which i have forgotten our general monsieur de vogue told us that we were all to return to our own houses we asked him where we should deposit the flag just then commandant magne detached it from the staff and put it in his pocket we then asked the general where we should deposit our arms he replied that we had better keep them as we should probably find use for them before long and also to take our ammunition with us to ensure our safety on the road from that time on we all did what we thought best sixty-four of us remained together and took a guide to enable us to avoid uza nicolas marie laborer deposed as follows on leaving the army of the duc d'angoulême after the capitulation i went with my officers in my corps to saint jean de Anel, 
we marched toward uza but when we were in the middle of a forest near a village the name of which i have forgotten our general monsieur de vogue told us that we were to go to our own homes as soon as we liked we saw commandant magne loose the flag from its staff roll it up and put it in his pocket we asked the general what we were to do with our arms he replied that we were to keep both them and our ammunition as we should find them of use upon this our chiefs left us and we all got away as best we could after the capitulation of the duc d'angoulême i found myself deposes paul lambert lace-maker of nimes in one of several detachments under the orders of commandant magne and general vogue in the middle of a forest near a village the name of which i do not know monsieur de vogue and the other officer told us we might go home the flag was folded up and monsieur magne put it in his pocket we asked our chiefs what we were to do with our arms monsieur de vogue told us that we had better keep them as we should need them before very long and in any case it would be well to have them with us on the road lest anything should happen to us the three depositions are too much alike to leave room for any doubt the royal volunteers contravened article one of the convention being thus abandoned by their chiefs without general and without flag monsieur de vogue's soldiers asked no further counsel of anyone but themselves and as one of them has already told us sixty-four of them joined together to hire a guide who was to show them how to get by uza without going through it for they were afraid of meeting with insult there the guide brought them as far as Montarem without anyone opposing their passage or taking notice of their arms suddenly a coachman named bertrand a confidential servant of abbe raffin former grand vicar of Alais and of baroness arnaud vermesser for the abbey administered the estate of aurillac in his own name and that of the baroness galloped into the village of arpaillarga which was almost entirely protestant and consequently napoleonist announcing that the michelets for after one hundred and ten years the old name given to the royal troops was revived were on the way from montarem pillaging houses murdering magistrates outraging women and then throwing them out of the windows it is easy to understand the effect of such a story the people gathered together in groups the mayor and his assistant being absent bertrand was taken before a certain bocarut who on receiving his report ordered the generale to be beaten and the tocsin to be rung then the consternation became general the men seized their muskets the women and children stones and pitchforks and every one made ready to face a danger which only existed in the imagination of bertrand for there was not a shadow of foundation for the story he had told while the village was in this state of feverish excitement the royal volunteers came in sight hardly were they seen than the cry there they are there they are arose on all sides the streets were barricaded with carts the tocsin rang out with redoubled frenzy and every one capable of carrying arms rushed to the entrance of the village the volunteers hearing the uproar and seeing the hostile preparations halted and to show that their intentions were peaceful put their shakos on their musket stocks and waved them above their heads shouting that no one need fear for they would do no harm to anyone but alarmed as they were by the terrible stories told by bertrand the villagers shouted back that they could not trust to such assurances and that if they wanted to pass through the village they must first give up their weapons it may easily be imagined that men who had broken the convention in order to keep their weapons were not likely to give them up to these villagers in fact they obstinately refused to let them out of their hands and by doing so increased the suspicions of the people 
A parley of a very excited character took place between Monsieur Fournier for the royal guards and Monsieur Boucarut, who was chosen spokesman by the villagers. From words they came to deeds, the Michelets tried to force their way through, some shots were fired and two Michelets, Calvet and Fournier, fell. The others scattered, followed by a lively discharge, and two more Michelets were slightly wounded. Thereupon they all took to flight, through the fields on either side of the road, pursued for a short distance by the villagers, but soon returned to examine the two wounded men, and a report was drawn up by Antoine Robin, advocate and magistrate of the canton of Uza, of the events just related. This accident was almost the only one of its kind which happened during the hundred days. The two parties remained face to face, threatening but self-controlled, but let there be no mistake, there was no peace, they were simply awaiting a declaration of war. When the calm was broken, it was from Marseilles that the provocation came. We shall efface ourselves for a time, and let an eyewitness speak, who being a Catholic cannot be suspected of partiality for the Protestants. I was living in Marseilles at the time of Napoleon's landing, and I was a witness of the impression which the news produced upon everyone. There was one great cry, the enthusiasm was universal. The National Guard wanted to join him to the last man, but Marshal Massena did not give his consent until it was too late, for Napoleon had already reached the mountains, and was moving with such swiftness that it would have been impossible to overtake him. Next we heard of his triumphal entry into Lyon, and of his arrival in Paris during the night. Marseilles submitted like the rest of France. Prince Dessling was recalled to the capital, and Marshal Brune, who commanded the 6th Corps of Observation, fixed his headquarters at Marseilles. With quite incomprehensible fickleness, Marseilles, whose name during the terror had been, as one may say, the symbol of the most advanced opinions, had become almost entirely royalist in 1815. Nevertheless, its inhabitants saw without a murmur the tricolor flag after a year's absence floating once more above the walls no arbitrary interference on the part of the authorities no threats and no brawling between the citizens and the soldiers troubled the peace of old phocaea no revolution ever took place with such quietness and facility it must however be said that marshal bruna was just the man to accomplish such a transformation without friction in him the frankness and loyalty of an old soldier were combined with other qualities more solid than brilliant tacitus in hand he looked on at modern revolutions as they passed, and only interfered when the voice of his country called him to her defense. The conqueror of Harlem and Bakun had been for four years forgotten in retirement, or rather in exile, when the same voice which sent him away recalled him, and at the summons, Cincinnatus left his plow and grasped his weapons. Physically, he was at this period a man of about fifty-five, with a frank and open face framed by large whiskers. His head was bald except for a little grizzled hair at the temples. He was tall and active, and had a remarkably soldiery bearing. I had been brought into contact with him by a report which one of my friends and I had drawn up on the opinions of the people of the South, and of which he had asked to have a copy. In a long conversation with us, he discussed the subject with the impartiality of a man who brings an open mind to a debate, and he invited us to come often to see him. We enjoyed ourselves so much in his society that we got into the habit of going to his house nearly every evening. On his arrival in the south, an old calumny which had formerly pursued him again made its appearance, quite rejuvenated by its long sleep. 
a writer whose name i have forgotten in describing the massacres of the second of september and the death of the unfortunate princessa de lamballe had said some people thought they recognized in the man who carried her head impaled on a pike general bruna in disguise and this accusation which had been caught up with eagerness under the consulate still followed him so relentlessly in eighteen fifteen that hardly a day passed without his receiving an anonymous letter threatening him with the same fate which had overtaken the princess one evening while we were with him such a letter arrived and having read it he passed it on to us it was as follows wretch we are acquainted with all your crimes for which you will soon receive the chastisement you well deserve it was you who during the revolution brought about the death of the princessa de lamballe it was you who carried her head on a pike but your head will be impaled on something longer if you are so rash as to be present at the review of the allies it is all up with you and your head will be stuck up on the steeple of the akula farewell scoundrel we advised him to trace this calumny to its source and then to take signal vengeance on the authors he paused an instant to reflect and then lit the letter at a candle and looking at it thoughtfully as it turned to ashes in his hand said vengeance yes perhaps by seeking that i could silence the authors of these slanders and preserve the public tranquillity which they constantly imperil but i prefer persuasion to severity my principle is that it is better to bring men's heads back to a right way of thinking than to cut them off and to be regarded as a weak man rather than as a bloodthirsty one the essence of marshal bruna's character was contained in these words public tranquillity was indeed twice endangered at marseilles during the hundred days and both times in the same manner the garrison officers used to gather at a coffee-house in the place necker and sing songs suggested by passing events this caused an attack by the townspeople who broke the windows by throwing stones some of which struck the officers these rushed out crying to arms the townspeople were not slow to respond but the commandant ordered the ganaidel to beat sent out numerous patrols and succeeded in calming the excitement and restoring quietness without any casualties the day of the champ du mai orders for a general illumination were given and that the tricolor flag should be displayed from the windows the greater number of the inhabitants paid no attention to the desires of the authorities and the officers being annoyed at this neglect indulged in reprehensible excesses which however resulted in nothing more serious than some broken windows belonging to houses which had not illuminated and in some of the householders being forced to illuminate according to order in marseilles as in the rest of france people began to despair of the success of the royal cause and those who represented this cause who were very numerous at marseilles gave up annoying the military and seemed to resign themselves to their fate marshal brune had left the city to take up his post on the frontier without any of the dangers with which he was threatened having come across his path the twenty-fifth of june arrived and the news of the successes obtained at fleurus and at ligny seemed to justify the hopes of the soldiers when in the middle of the day muttered reports began to spread in the town the distant reverberations of the cannon of waterloo the silence of the leaders the uneasiness of the soldiers the delight of the royalists foretold the outbreak of a new struggle the results of which it was easy to anticipate about four o'clock in the afternoon a man who had probably got earlier information than his fellow townspeople tore off his tricolored cockade and trampled it underfoot crying long live the king 
The angry soldiers seized him and were about to drag him to the guardhouse, but the National Guards prevented them, and their interference led to a fight. Shouts were heard on all sides, a large ring was formed round the soldiers, a few musket shots heard, others answered, three or four men fell, and lay there weltering in their blood. Out of this confused uproar the word Waterloo emerged distinct, and with this unfamiliar name pronounced for the first time in the resounding voice of history, the news of the defeat of the French army and the triumph of the Allies spread apace. Then General Verdier, who held the chief command in the absence of Marshal Brune, tried to harangue the people, but his voice was drowned by the shouts of the mob, who had gathered round a coffee-house where stood a bust of the emperor, which they insisted should be given up to them. Verdier, hoping to calm what he took to be a simple street-row, gave orders that the bust should be brought out, and this concession, so significant on the part of a general commanding in the emperor's name, convinced the crowd that his cause was lost. The fury of the populace grew greater now that they felt that they could indulge it with impunity. They ran to the town hall, and tearing down and burning the tricolored, raised the white flag. The roll of the generale, the clang of the tocsin were heard. The neighboring villages poured in their populations and increased the throng in the streets. Single acts of violence began to occur. Wholesale massacres were approaching. I had arrived in the town with my friend, Monsieur, the very beginning of the tumult, so we had seen the dangerous agitation and excitement grow under our eyes, but we were still ignorant of its true cause, when in the Rue de Noailles we met an acquaintance who, although his political opinions did not coincide with ours, had always shown himself very friendly to us. Well, I said, what news? Good for me and bad for you, he answered. I advise you to go away at once. Surprised and somewhat alarmed at these words, we begged him to explain. Listen, said he, there are going to be riots in the town. It is well known that you used to go to Bruna's nearly every evening, and that you are in consequence no favorite with your neighbors. Seek safety in the country. I addressed some further question to him, but turning his back to me, he left me without another word. Monsieur and I were still looking at each other in stupefaction, when the increasing uproar roused us to a sense that if we desired to follow the advice just given, we had not a moment to lose. We hastened to my house, which was situated in the Allée de Mayan. My wife was just going out, but I stopped her. We are not safe here, I said. We must get away into the country. But where can we go? Wherever luck takes us, let us start. She was going to put on her bonnet, but I told her to leave it behind, for it was most important that no one should think we suspected anything, but were merely going for a stroll. This precaution saved us for we learnt the next day that if our intention to fly had been suspected, we should have been stopped. We walked at random, while behind us we heard musket shots from every part of the town. We met a company of soldiers who were hurrying to the relief of their comrades, but heard later that they had not been allowed to pass the gate. We recollected an old officer of our acquaintance who had quitted the service, then withdrawn from the world some years before, and had taken a place in the country near the village of St. Just. We directed our course toward his house. Captain, said I to him, they are murdering each other in the town. We are pursued and without asylum, so we come to you. That's right, my children, said he. Come in and welcome. I have never meddled with political affairs, and no one can have anything against me. No one will think of looking for you here. The captain had friends in the town, who, one after another, reached his house and brought us news of all that went on during that dreadful day. 
many soldiers had been killed and the mameluk had been annihilated a negress who had been in the service of these unfortunates had been taken on the quay cry long live the king shouted the mob no she replied to napoleon i owe my daily bread long live napoleon a bayonet thrust in the abdomen was the answer villains said she covering the wound with her hand to keep back the protruding entrails long live napoleon a push sent her into the water she sank but rose again to the surface and waving her hand she cried for the last time long live napoleon a bullet shot putting an end to her life several of the townspeople had met with shocking deaths for instance monsieur angle a neighbor of mine an old man and no inconsiderable scholar having unfortunately when at the palace some days before given utterance before witnesses to the sentiment that napoleon was a great man learned that for his crime he was about to be arrested yielding to the prayers of his family he disguised himself and getting into a wagon set off to seek safety in the country he was however recognized and brought a prisoner to the place du chapitre where after being buffeted about and insulted for an hour by the populace he was at last murdered it may easily be imagined that although no one came to disturb us we did not sleep much that night the ladies rested on sofas or in armchairs without undressing while our host monsieur and myself took turns in guarding the door gun in hand as soon as it was light we consulted what course we should take i was of the opinion that we ought to try to reach i by unfrequented paths having friends there we should be able to procure a carriage and get to nimes where my family lived but my wife did not agree with me i must go back to town for our things said she we have no clothes but those on our backs let us send to the village to ask if marseilles is quieter to-day than yesterday so we sent off a messenger the news he brought back was favorable order was completely restored i could not quite believe this and still refused to let my wife return to the town unless i accompanied her but in that everyone was against me my presence would give rise to dangers which without me had no existence where were the miscreants cowardly enough to murder a woman of eighteen who belonged to no party and had never injured anyone as for me my opinions were well known moreover my mother-in-law offered to accompany her daughter and both joined in persuading me that there was no danger at last i was forced to consent but only on one condition i cannot say i observed whether there is any foundation for the reassuring tidings we have heard but of one thing you may be sure it is now seven o'clock in the morning you can get to marseilles in an hour pack your trunks in another hour and return in a third let us allow one hour more for unforeseen delays if you are not back by eleven o'clock i shall believe something has happened and take steps accordingly very well said my wife if i am not back by then you may think me dead and do whatever you think best and so she and her mother left me an hour later quite different news came to hand fugitives seeking like ourselves safety in the country told us that the rioting far from ceasing had increased the streets were encumbered with corpses and two people had been murdered with unheard-of cruelty an old man named Bessiris, who had led a simple and blameless life and whose only crime was that he had served under the usurper anticipating that under existing circumstances this would be regarded as a capital crime made his will which was afterwards found among his papers it began with the following words as it is possible that during this revolution i may meet my death as a partisan of napoleon 
although i have never loved him i give and bequeath etc etc the day before his brother-in-law knowing he had private enemies had come to the house and spent the night trying to induce him to flee but all in vain but the next morning his house being attacked he yielded and tried to escape by the back door he was stopped by some of the national guard and placed himself under their protection they took him to the corps st louis where being hustled by the crowd and very ineffectually defended by the guards he tried to enter the cafe mercantier but the door was shut in his face being broken by fatigue breathless and covered with dust and sweat he threw himself on one of the benches placed against the wall outside the house here he was wounded by a musket bullet but not killed at the sight of his blood shrieks of joy were heard and then a young man with a pistol in each hand forced his way through the throng and killed the old man by two shots fired point-blank in the face another still more atrocious murder took place in the course of the same morning a father and son bound back to back were delivered over to the tender mercies of the mob stoned and beaten and covered with each other's blood for two long hours their death agony endured and all the while those who could not get near enough to strike were dancing round them our time passed listening to such stories suddenly i saw a friend running towards the house i went to meet him he was so pale that i hardly dared to question him he came from the city and had been at my house to see what had become of me there was no one in it but across the door lay two corpses wrapped in a blood-stained sheet which he had not dared to lift at these terrible words nothing could hold me back i set off for marseilles monsieur who would not consent to let me return alone accompanied me in passing through the village of st just we encountered a crowd of armed peasants in the main street who appeared to belong to the free companies although this circumstance was rather alarming it would have been dangerous to turn back so we continued our way as if we were not in the least uneasy they examined our bearing and our dress narrowly and then exchanged some sentences in a low voice of which we only caught the words ostanier this was the name by which the bonapartists were called by the peasants and means eaters of chestnuts this article of food being brought from corsica to france however we were not molested in any way for as we were going towards the city they did not think we could be fugitives a hundred yards beyond the village we came up with a crowd of peasants who were like us on the way to marseilles it was plain to see that they had just been pillaging some country house for they were laden with rich stuffs chandeliers and jewels it proved to be that of monsieur r inspector of reviews several carried muskets i pointed out to my companion a stain of blood on the trousers of one of the men who began to laugh when he saw what we were looking at two hundred yards outside the city i met a woman who had formerly been a servant in my house she was very much astonished to see me and said go away at once the massacre is horrible much worse than yesterday but my wife i cried do you know anything about her no sir she replied I was going to knock at the door, but some people asked me in a threatening manner if I could tell them where the friend of that rascal Bruna was, as they were going to take away his appetite for bread. So take my advice, she continued, and go back to where you came from. This advice was the last I could make up my mind to follow. So we went on, but found a strong guard at the gate and saw that it would be impossible to get through without being recognized at the same time the cries and the reports of firearms from within were coming nearer it would therefore have been to court certain death to advance so we retraced our steps 
in passing again through the village of St. Just, we met once more our armed peasants, but this time they burst out into threats on seeing us shouting, Let us kill them, let us kill them. Instead of running away, we approached them, assuring them that we were royalists. Our coolness was so convincing that we got through safe and sound. On getting back to the captains, I threw myself on the sofa, quite overcome by the thought that only that morning my wife had been beside me under my protection, and that I had let her go back to the town to a cruel and inevitable death. I felt as if my heart would break, and nothing that our host and my friend could say gave me the slightest comfort. I was like a madman, unconscious of everything around me. Monsieur went out to try to pick up some news, but in an instant we heard him running back, and he dashed into the room, calling out, They are coming! There they are! Who are coming? we asked. The assassins! My first feeling, I confess, was one of joy. I pounced upon a pair of double-barreled pistols, resolved not to let myself be slaughtered like a sheep. Through the window I could see some men climbing over the wall and getting down into the garden. We had just sufficient time to escape by a back staircase which led to a door, through which we passed, shutting it behind us. We found ourselves on a road at the other side of which was a vineyard. We crossed the road and crept under the vines, which completely concealed us. As we learned later, the captain's house had been denounced as a Bonapartist nest, and the assassins had hoped to take it by surprise, and indeed, if they had come a little sooner, we had been lost. For before we had been five minutes in our hiding place, the murderers rushed out on the road, looking for us in every direction, without the slightest suspicion that we were not six yards distant. Though they did not see us, I could see them, and I held my pistols ready cocked, quite determined to kill the first who came near. However, in a short time, they went away. End of chapter 7, section 1, reading by John Van Stan, Savannah, Georgia.